Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. This is definitely an iconic, legendary show event, but probably for all the wrong reasons, which we're <laughs> yeah. going to talk, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, maybe the show that killed Strike Force's chances to compete with the UFC. We'll get we'll get to it all, but um, it's always great to be on the show with you, Phil. Yeah, and we will discuss that. Uh, I did want to mention uh, we are back. I did contract COVID uh, my, myself and my wife did. And so we took an unexpected break. And uh, yeah, it was not fun for a few days for sure. Doing fine now. But uh, it was definitely not something where I <laughs> felt like doing a bunch of research, never mind really even getting out of bed. So, uh, but we're back doing fine. And so we're, we're back at it. So appreciate your patience in that uh, for our new listeners inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters and milestones of strike force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on today's episode, we will be discussing strike force Nashville, one of the most notorious events not just in Strike Force history, but I, I would say in MMA history. Uh, it took place on April 17, 2010, in, as you guessed it, Nashville, Tennessee, which is about a half hour from where I live now. And the event featured three title fights, and that was it on the main card. Uh, this also, the, these title fights included Jake Shields' first defense of his Strike Force middleweight title against former UFC and Pride star Dan Henderson, Gilbert Melendez defending his undisputed Strike Force lightweight title against Japanese star Shinya Aoki, and Gegard Musasi putting the Strike Force light heavyweight title on the line against rising star King Mo. Lawal. I wanted to mention Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can check out other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. But with that, let's get to it. Uh, fallout from Strike Force Miami, that was the previous Strike Force event. Uh, the promotion had gone two and a half months without an event, with its last event before Nashville taking place in Miami at the end of January. On that card, Bobby Lashley had beaten Wes Sims in the Strike Force debut for both. Herschel Walker had made his MMA debut, which was a huge deal. This is a college football Hall of Famer, one of the greatest American athletes of all time, former Olympic bobsledder, uh, and he decided to sign with Strikeforce. And at 47 years old, he got a TKO win over Greg Nudge. And then Robbie Lawler knocked out Melvin, Melvin Manhove in an absolutely scintillating first-round comeback that is definitely worth looking up if you have not already. And then in the co-main event, Chris Cyborg TKO'd Marlos Kunin in the third round after absolutely dominating most of the fight. And then in the main event, Strikeforce had crowned a new welterweight champion as Nick Diaz had overwhelmed Demarius Zoromskis with a first-round TKO. And there were some definite uh, highlights and questions that came out of the event. Was Bobby Lashley for real? Would Walker continue in his MMA career? You saw you know stars being built up further. Lawler's stock shot up after his brutal knockout of Manhoff, which followed a submission loss to Jake Shields the previous June. Cyborg continued to raise her profile and really at this point was – uh, on the on the cusp of eclipsing Gina Carano to become MMA, MMA's next female superstar. And then Nick Diaz finally had some gold around his his way. So lots going on in Strike Force, and that leads us into Strike Force Nashville. It was confirmed in late February of 2010 with an early uh, rumored bout being Fedor Emelianenko versus Fabricio Verdun, which of course we would end up seeing that just not on this card. Uh, instead, the event, which would be broadcasted on CBS, would feature Shields and Henderson in the main event, as well as King Mo versus Gegard Musassi and Gilbert Melendez versus Shinya Aoki. Around this time, it was rumored that the UFC might actually counter-program the 
the, Na- the Nashville event with an event of its own, and it would possibly be a fight night event that would take place in Nashville at another venue. And, you know, if that happened, uh, there was then rumors that Strikeforce would move its event to April 24th, which would have counter-programmed a WEC event that would have likely been shown on pay-per-view featuring Jose Aldo versus Uriah Faber, which was a huge uh, lighter weight, you know, lighter weight uh, bout and, and really one of the biggest, if not the biggest featherweight bouts they could have made at that point. So, but however, a few weeks after these rumors got started, UFC press Dana White came out and said he had never planned on an, uh, having an April 17th event and that when the media started calling him to ask about it, he decided to play a bit of a game and quote, let it ride out and let journalists, uh, and that's, he said them, but I put in journalists, sweat it. And quote, he added, uh, quote, what you guys have to understand sometimes is these guys consider themselves a competitor and I like to compete. So I can't always tell you guys exactly what I'm doing and what I'm thinking and what's going to go on End quote. And then interestingly, Dan, Dan Henderson gave an interview around this time and stated that all Dana's games had done was irritate the CBS executives into putting more promotional money behind Strikeforce Nash- Nashville, which included running ads during the network's March Madness broadcast. Hendo even joked that Strikeforce should name Dana its employee of the month, which which is, which is funny. Uh, but moving on, Bobby Lashley was supposed to fight on the Nashville card uh, with Strikeforce going so far as to submit, uh, submit an opponent to Tennessee's Athletic Commission. However, a couple weeks before the event, it was announced that Lashley would not appear as he had had a minor surgical procedure done and a full fight camp wouldn't be possible. So instead, the promotion was looking to move him to its upcoming May or June event. King Mo was definitely someone to watch on this card. He couldn't have been more different than his opponent, Gegard Musassi. Mo was early on in his career. He was a showman, a trash talker, very charismatic, used wrestling as his base while possessing knockout power, former state wrestling champ in Texas, an NCAA Division II national wrestling champ, and he had come oh so close to making the 2008 U.S. Olympic wrestling team. And so this title fight was an opportunity for Mo to really cement himself as a real true MMA superstar. And then on the other side of the coin, you've got Gegard Mousasi, very quiet, unassuming, kind of Fedor-like in his approach, uh, you know, very soft-spoken, deep fight experience, which again was different than Mo at this time, incredibly well-rounded skill set despite his young age. Uh, but he would get a chance to prove his superiority over his less experienced challengers. So really a kind of a tale of two very different fighters. And then two fighters that, again, were, were pretty different. Gilbert Melendez and Shinya Aoki. Very intriguing fight for hardcore MMA fans. Well, while mostly unknown in the U.S., Aoki was considered a top three lightweight in the world. Uh, but the, there were a lot of questions. Would he be able to adjust to fighting in a cage without his signature grappling pants, which would not be allowed in the U.S.? And, and also he'd be fighting in a country he'd never competed in before while representing his native Japan on national American TV against one of his fellow top 155ers. I mean, that, that is a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, so that, you know, would he, be, would he be able to withstand all that and deal with that? Uh, Melendez stated around this time that if he beat Aoki, there was actually an automatic rematch clause in the contract, which would uh, basically stipulate that he would be going to Japan to face Aoki in the dream promotion where the Japanese grappling master was the lightweight champ. So, so kind of interesting there. Uh, moving forward, Hendo signing with Strikeforce was a huge deal for the promotion and coming off his all-time classic knockout of Michael Bisping at UFC 100, which had been preceded by decision wins over Husamar Pajaris and Rich Franklin. Henderson was in negotiations to get a UFC middleweight championship rematch against Anderson Silva, who had submitted him in 2008. However, apparently Hendo didn't like the offer. Instead, he signed with Strikeforce, and he was the betting favorite 
coming into the fight with Shields, which had to be super motivating for the champ, and, and many expected Hendo to knock him out and, and become the new champ. Yeah, Phil, I mean, this was supposed to be Strike Force taking one of the UFC's top stars, putting him in the main event for a championship, and and crowning him. And, and, you know, it was supposed to be sort of like this symbolic moment where the, the where Strikeforce was taking some of that UFC brand and that power and infusing it into Strikeforce. Um, it didn't really happen that way because, um, well, we're going to talk about the main event. But uh, it was just interesting that that was sort of the goal. And, of course, uh, you know, you can't always, you can't script these things. You sort of put people in the position and hope that they happen. And it didn't really didn't really work out but we'll talk about it but you know this was this was a big deal this was supposed to be the crowning moment of strike force on cbs very well recognized and well known dan henderson supposed to knock jake shields out and it was going to be this great moment and it wasn't yeah it, it just didn't which we'll get into that of course it didn't end up fleshing out the way probably strike force wanted, wanted it to work out either and but yeah, but a very interesting wrinkle to the main event was that this was apparently the last fight of Shields' contract with Strike Force, and he had made it clear that he planned to test the waters of free agency with Dana White. Dana White expected to be a strong suitor for his services. However, Scott Coker had publicly proclaimed that Strike Force still had an option left on Shields. But regardless of the situation, having your champ fight out his contract and on national TV with the idea that you know he's saying that he can go the free agency route after this and you saying, Oh no, we still have an option. It's just not a good look for the promotion at all. Yeah. I mean, uh, Scott Coker needed to be down there at uh, hexagon side and telling him to ring the bell as soon as Hendo hit him. Cause, <laughs> Cause you know, I mean, that's, that's why, that's why you do that thing. Right. But I mean, essentially they're hoping Hendo would win. It would really hurt Jake's bargaining power with the UFC and it would just uh, make him a lot less expensive for everybody. That was, Sort of what they were hoping for, and you know why not? Dan Anderson was a knockout artist, and Jake didn't really have stand-up skills, so it looked like it might happen on paper. Yeah, I mean, this it definitely for the promotion itself, it would have been best if if Hendo had won. But you know, this is the difference between pro wrestling and MMA: is that uh, at least on the surface, you 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 know don't really know who's going to win uh, when it when it comes to MMA. So, or you can't control who's going to win. So interesting. Uh, but the undercard featured mostly local Tennessee fighters, but there were a few notable names, Dustin Ortiz and Ovince St. Pro. Uh, Mayhem Miller versus Tim Stout was supposed to run in some four on the televised main card, but at least the the um, the version of the broadcast that's on uh, UFC Fight Pass does not include that fight. Um, so it would not end up being shown. It did happen, but it didn't happen on the main card. And so it wasn't shown due to time constraints. All three fights went to the, you know, five, five, five round, um, or I'm sorry, uh, five round fights. There we go. It went the full five rounds. They were all championship fights. So, you know, that ate up all the, all the TV time that they had. So, uh, but moving forward, let's uh, jump into what's going on in Bellator and the UFC at this time. Uh, we would see new champs named in Bellator on June 24th, but they were in the midst of their second season at this point. So once those are concluded and we know what those, uh, what those champions are, we will let you know, uh, in the UFC, we did have a new, uh, Strike Force lightweight champion and Frankie Edgar. More on that in just a second. While GSP and Anderson Silva are still the welterweight and middleweight champs, uh, 
uh, respectively. And then Lyoto Machida was still the UFC light heavyweight champion. And Brock Lesnar was still the undisputed heavyweight champion. But you would have changes to the light heavyweight and the heavyweight uh, divisions later on in the year. And we'll talk more about that. The closest UFC event to this Strikeforce Nashville event was UFC 112, which took place at the Concert Arena on Yaz Island in the United Arab Emirates on April 10th, 2010, a week before Strikeforce Nashville. This was the first UFC event after Flash Entertainment, a UAE government-owned company, had purchased a 10% stake in the company. It was also the first UFC event to take place in an outdoor venue. So, interesting. Phil Davis submitted Alexander Gustafson on the undercard, while Matt Hughes TKO'd Hen Enzo Gracie on the main card. And then in the co-main event, as we just mentioned, Frankie Edber- Edgar became the new UFC lightweight champion when he took a decision win over BJ Penn. And then in the main event, Anderson Silva defeated Demi and Maya via decision to defend his UFC middleweight title in a very widely panned match. I remember this. Uh, I didn't watch the fight, but I saw clips and I remember Dana White being extremely upset after that event. Uh, Silva was clearly the much better fighter than Maya, but just would not go for the finish. And in fact, if I remember correctly, I think the crowd began to turn on Silva. So, you know, you set the the first time they're in the UAE in front of these, you know, new big money partners, a governmental situation. And, and you have your, you know, possibly your, 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 uh, your most talented and the most skilled champion um, with apologies to GSP, but I, I I put Silva ahead of him. Uh, And, and, you know, you, you, got him putting on this very embarrassing performance. Uh, you know, just imagine it was not a good moment for Dana White and the Fertitas, and you can understand why he was so upset. You know? Yeah, I remember uh, Anderson Silva, I think, was doing a little dancing in this fight and uh, not taking it as seriously as he could. I mean, the truth is, Damian Maya is a top-level submission specialist, too, so you really can't blame Anderson Silva for trying to win any way he can. But, Phil, we're going to have to have a future podcast and we're not going to go down this rabbit hole i'm just going to be quick gsp versus anderson silva who was better put that on your calendar we'll finish that discussion later yeah we'll have to talk about that at some point i <laughs> man i don't know I, I you know i think you can go the goat in, in in each weight class but it's hard to say who the absolute greatest is of all time i i think i'd have to actually say john jones is the greatest of all time i mean just you know, really only one loss and it wasn't even a real loss. And yes, he, you know, got taken to the limit a few times, but I, I got it. I mean, most talented, most skilled and just, you know, win after win after win. I it's, if he does, you know, end up going to the heavyweight division and actually competing and, you know, getting a title shot. I mean, if he somehow wins the belt, I, I, I don't know how you could not say he's the greatest of all time. So, but anyways, yeah, something we can talk about at some point. Uh, all right, so there was a uh, Challengers event that that took place a few weeks before Strikeforce Nashville. Uh, on um, it was held uh, at the Save Mart Center in Fresno, California. It was Johnson versus, and I don't know how to say this, M A H E. So we'll just say May. I, I don't I don't know if that's correct, but a lot of big names on this card. Daniel Cormier made his second Strikeforce and MMA appearance, knocking out John Devine in just over a minute. In addition, Justin Wilcock. Cox beat uh, Shamar Bailey via decision. Misha Tate submitted Zwalo, Zwala Frosto. Uh, sorry if I got that wrong with an arm bar. And Andre Galvin Zoyla. beat Luke. Zoila. Zoila Frosto. I remember Luke. she's one of, she's one of the people that Mike Frommo had set me up with an interview way back in the day. And, oh, okay. Uh, very, very nice person. But yeah. Zoila, Zoyla Frosto. Frosto. Yeah. 
Okay. I don't All know. right. Not an Thank easy you. one, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, Z-O-I-L-A is the first name for those that care. F-R-A-U-S-T-O. So uh, I guess because I, I see the O-I-L-A reminds me of voila. So Zwala, I guess. But that you're, you're, pro- you're probably close. You're probably closer to like the traditional, you know, in that language pronunciation. But um, I do know she responded to Zoilo when I talked to her. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Uh, and then Andre Gavlo beat Luke Stewart via split decision, ending his career. And more on that in a second. And then in the main event, LeVar Johnson TKO'd Lolo Hea May. I, like, like I said, that's how we're going to go. He was Hawaiian. Uh, so apologize, apologize if I got that wrong. But as I just mentioned, this would be Luke Stewart's final MMA appearance. We talked about him a lot uh, early on in this podcast because he appeared a lot in the, the promotion. And after starting off his career with five straight wins, all in strike force, the tattoo artist had lost three of his last four to end his career at six and three. And, you know, he never really reached star status. Uh, once he started kind of started tangling with, with guys that were, you know, above him and, and more experienced and, and that sort of thing. He just, you know, that's where we, we started seeing him lose. And, uh, but he had a decent career and, you know, spent his entire run with strike force. I mean, not many fighters spend their entire run with the top level promotion. So, so hats off to Mr. Stewart and whatever he's doing, I assume he's still tattooing people in San Francisco. If that's what he's still up to, then hats off to him. I did try to look him up and try to find him and I couldn't find information on him. So I'm not really sure what he's up to anymore, but, uh, you know, hey, uh, you know, good on him. All right, let's get into the event details. Strikeforce Nashville took place at the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee on April 17, 2010. The event drew 8,196 fans as well as 2.9 million viewers on CBS, which was a pretty far cry from the numbers that Elite XC was drawing. Uh, but, the, you know, this was a any time got any promotion right now would be happy to get 3 million viewers on pretty much anything. So, you know, that's Smack, a, Smackdown would kill for that number. Oh my God. Absolutely. <laughs> Raw would probably, you know, fire Vince McMahon if they could get 3 million viewers, you know, <laughs> they, they probably uh, could get 3 million viewers. Um, if Vince McMahon was fired, if they did it on the air, they would. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, uh, but uh, Gus Johnson, Mara Ranella, and Frank Shamrock were back on the call with Jimmy Lennon Jr. once again handling uh, ring announcing. Where was Quadros? Um, maybe would you have something to do with the booking here? You like get him off yeah, my show? No. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, he was, you know, I think he was doing a lot of the uh, the challenger events. They were. This is where they were getting more of a, a set crew. And so Quadros would kind of be brought in on the main stuff, but I think he ended up settling in next to uh, Pat Militich on the, uh, on the, the challenger events alongside oh, that, Mar, Mar, Mar Ronell as well. Yeah, that, that was a good team. I, I remember that. Um, I, yeah. I would have wanted Quadros on this show though. And we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, instead of Gus. <laughs> instead of, yeah, I, yeah. I, I would agree with you there. Uh, but I will say Gus handled the, the, the melee, the post-fight brawl, I think about as well as could be expected. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit more. Uh, but very cool opening graphics for this show. Um, I, I, Josh, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, essentially it showed the main fighters being broken apart into little pieces that came back together slowly to form the full fighter. I, I, I thought it would look cool even today. I, I, I don't know if you had any thoughts on it, but I actually thought it looked pretty cool. Well, I think one of the cool things about Strikeforce on CBS and Showtime was just the high quality of the graphics and the, the promotion, and it made it seem legit and in some ways better than the, what the UFC was doing. So, yeah, so yeah, that was very cool. Yeah. All right, jumping into the undercard, uh, in a 145-pound bout, Cody Floyd defeated Thomas Campbell via KO, coming by way of knee at 41 seconds of the third round. 
In the next bout, 125 pounds, Dustin Ortiz defeated Justin Pennington via submission coming by way of rear naked choke at 427 of the first round. Ortiz uh, might be a familiar name. He would be back on a challenger's card the following year and would go on to have a long run in the UFC. Uh, he went 8-6 and six from 2013 until 2019, and he's still an active fighter today. So cool to see a, a name we, we might recognize. And then in a 185-pound bout, Zach Underwood defeated Hunter Worsham via unanimous decision. Uh, Worsham for Cal. Uh, California MMA fans. He is the son of California MMA pioneer Cal Worsham, who I worked with a bit when I was doing PR for Gladiator Challenge. Uh, and Hunter was a, he was essentially, Cal was at that point essentially the matchmaker um, for Ted Williams, the, the owner and promoter. Uh, but Hunter was a, a dual champ in, in Gladiator Challenge, and he was stationed with the U.S. Army at Fort Campbell about an hour outside of Nashville. I've actually visited uh, that uh, uh, Fort Campbell. They've got a very cool kind of, um, they have a very cool museum there and they have like helicopters and planes that have been, you know, essentially been turned into this museum. And it's actually very, very cool. It's worth a visit if you're ever, you know, in the Nashville area, but uh, definitely a big fight for, for Worsham. And um, I, I did do my research. I saw that Hunter and Cal had actually got to fight on a card together and they both won by knockout on that card. And that, that must've been a pretty amazing experience, but unfortunately he lost. Uh, he's Cal or not Cal Cal's retired, but Hunter is actually still technically active. He fought, I believe last in 2019, he's got a record of 10 and three, um, but he's only fought three times in the last seven years. So he's not really a full time, definitely not a full-time fighter. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so we're, we're he, kinda, he's on, cut. he's on that Cain Velasquez schedule, I guess. I guess. Yeah. I, although his is likely cause he was obviously active military was probably more due to that versus yeah. injuries, <laughs> but <laughs> Anyways, all right, light heavyweight bout. Kale Yarbrough defeated Josh Shockman via TKO, coming by way of knees of knees and punches at 101 of the second round. This was two UFC vets here, so that was you know pretty cool to see on the undercard. And then uh, Jason Mayhem Miller in 185 pounds defeated Tim Stout via TKO, coming by way of punches at 309 of the first round. Mayhem at 22 and seven was coming off his loss to Jake Shields for the Strike Force middleweight belt, and this was a very winnable fight for him with Stout coming in with a fairly pedestrian 12 and eight record. And we do have a recap of the action coming from MMAweekly.com. mayhem tags stout with a good leg kick to open things up after exchanging a few punches standing mayhem shoots in and lands a nice takedown mayhem has stout stacked against the cage, throwing down punches, opening up a, a cut on stout's head. Mayhem continues to attack and stout turtles up with no defense. Mayhem blasts away with several more strikes to the head and Mario Yamasaki mercifully stops the fight. And that's it ironically this would be mayhem's last strike force fight uh, you might be able to guess as to why that was and we'll have more on that in just a little bit then in a 170 pound bout andy U Ulrich, Ulrich, U -H -R -I -C -H, we'll just go with Ulrich, defeated justin or i'm sorry dustin west via submission come by way of rene could choke at 136 of the first round that's the last time you're going to hear me say andy's name so i don't have to worry about how to say it after this and then in the the main event of the undercard ovince saint pro defeated chris hawk v tko coming by way of punches at 47 seconds of the first round in a 205 pound bout 
OSP, obviously a very familiar name to MMA fans today, was only 4-4 four and four coming into this fight, as was Chris Hawk. Uh, OSP had played college football for the local Tennessee Volunteers, so he was expected to be the crowd favorite here. And we do have a, a recap. Uh, Hawk, again, coming. this is coming from MMAWeekly.com. Hawk jumps for a punch and gets blasted by St. Pro instead. St. Pro gets on top and blasts away punches, grabs Hawk by the throat, and just pummels him until John McCarthy stops the fight. Nice win for OSP, who would be back multiple times in Strike Force. so we'll be talking about him more in the future. All right, here we go. We are at the main event in the first bout on the main card. I'm sorry, not main event, main card. On the uh, In the first bout on the main card, at 205 pounds, King Mo Lawal defeated Gegard Musassi via unanimous decision to win the Strike Force Light Heavyweight Champion. Coming into this one, King Mo was undefeated at 6-0 with five knockouts, and he was coming off a crowd-pleasing finish of Mike Whitehead at Strike Force Evolution the previous descent, December, which uh, apparently had earned him a, a title shot. And then coming into this fight on the champion side, Musassi at 28-2 was on a 15-fight win streak, and 26 of his 28 wins had come via stoppage. I mean, good Lord, this was a guy, if he was in the cage with you, he's probably going to win, he was probably going to finish you. So pretty amazing. He had knocked out MMA pioneer Gary Goodridge in Japan on New Year's Eve in uh, in a, a Japanese era about in Japan, and then had stopped Sokaju at Strike Force Fedor versus Rogers in November. So, uh, you know, this he was a busy guy. You know, young fighter with tons of fights. That's because he kept fighting. You know, so good stuff. Let's jump into the fight itself. EA Sports MMA had provided a fight simulation. Uh, footage to show how the fight might go. It does not look all that great in light of today's video game graphics, but you know, it was a pretty cool idea. EA sports was, you know, completely linked to strike force was using tons of their fighters for their video games. So it made sense for them to promote the game on a strike force event. Uh, but yeah, graphics, not all that great, but uh, you know, still, still a, a pretty cool idea. Uh, in the first round, we saw King Mo expending a lot of energy on takedowns and ground and pound, and he had the champ on his back a lot, but really wasn't doing a lot of damage. Musassi landed some nice shots once he was able to get back up, and he clearly had Mo's left eye closing. Yeah, you can see that King Mo was trying to implement what be, would be his game plan for the fight early on. He was sort of laying the seeds. He was going to try to wrestle Musasi, you know, and, and it was smart, but... Uh, you could also see Musasi was very dead, deadly, you know, and dangerous in, in the striking. So it, it was a very interesting round because you kind of could see how both guys could win the fight. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but in the second round, Mo got another quick takedown and. Uh, you know, but the interesting, interesting thing that Musasi was doing most of the damage from his back. I mean, he, he was super busy throwing all kinds of punches back, like back fists and just all kinds of stuff. And Mo just didn't seem to know what to do with all the strikes. So even, even though the challenger got three takedowns, I felt like Musasi won the second round uh, because of all the strikes he was landing, how he kept Mo from passing and, and advancing his position. Yeah, I agree with you, Phil. Uh, Musasi was still doing damage. He was clearly frustrated because his wrestling was just crap, and he wasn't able to do anything. But he was able to to, to strike, and King Mo's eye looked started to look really bad. So, yeah, it's about even after the the first two rounds. I thought. 
Yeah, and I, th- I felt like Mo was was clearly tired heading into the third round. And, I mean, both fighters, of course, starting off on their feet, a lot of wild swings, and Mo survived and took the champ down once again. He landed some decent shots on Musassi, who actually, you know, seemed to be getting tired, uh, you know, for his side. So good, ro- good round for Mo, and I definitely felt like he got that one. You know, I think that there's some analysis that needs to be done in Musasi because, you know, you went over his record and he's just so good, so young. He's like 24 years old, 24 years old when he's fighting. Uh, but in this fight, King Mo just got to him. And I sort of felt like Musasi kind of gave up a little bit. He quit. He was so frustrated. And we started to see his engagement in this fight go down in this round. He... He was tired. Now, now he looks great. Okay, he's in great shape physically, but I, I don't think he was well trained for this fight because he—I don't know what was up with his camp, but he got tired. He got frustrated. He was fatigued. He got exhausted. He was spent. And you know, if, if you're just gonna let King Mo take you down, you know that's not a good recipe for for victory. But I sort of felt Musasi just said, "Damn, I don't think I'm gonna be able to do it in this." Yeah, I, I felt like he kind of mentally broke a little bit. It was like, you know, I, I keep getting taken down. It's, okay, well, why weren't you training for that? You know, why why wasn't that a, a main point of your training? You've got an Olympic-level wrestler that you're matching up with here, and yes, he can knock you out on your, on on his feet, but you've had all kinds of kickboxing and Muay Thai training. Like, why? Yeah, I, I don't know what happened here either, but this was, you know, I mean, Musassians, it was either exposed or just had a really bad night, but... More of the same in the fourth. Mo taking Musasi down again and again. He seemed to have caught a second wind and was landing some good strikes from the top. And Musasi needed to get going, but he just n- could not keep the smothering challenger off of him. And uh, But this time, however, Big John McCarthy didn't like the amount of activity for Mo and stood things up. But once again, Mo just took him down. And Musasi just didn't have an answer for Mo's wrestling. And then in the final frame, we saw a, a very – uh, very solid takedown early on from Mo, who was tired but but seemed more confident. And from his back, Musasi landed a kick to Mo, who was on his knees, which was illegal. And McCar- McCarthy paused the fight and took a point away. Mo's eye was just about closed at this point. It was pretty bad. And Musasi, he kept busy, was landing strikes from his back, but he just was not able to stay off his back. And that's never a good look in front of the judges. And Musasi was able to get back up. Mo promptly deposited him back on the canvas once again, and that's how it an- ended, and it was very clear we had a new champion. I remember watching this fight live and being really frustrated because Musasi just could not do anything to to counter the takedowns, and it's frustrating because he's, he's such a better overall fighter. I think he, he didn't prepare for, for King Mo the way that he should. He was out of shape, I will say that. He lacked the stamina. He got tired. And I think the combination of him physically getting tired with King Mo just smothering him and wrestlers knowing how to use their weight in a way where it just feels heavier and heavier as it goes on. And then mentally, he just uh, was not strong enough to to compete. Um, it, It was very frustrating. I remember that. Now, he did strike him a lot he did hit him a lot and we that was evidenced by king mo's eyes or you know his i think it was his left eye nearly swollen musasi looked untouched so it was very frustrating because musasi just did not have an answer to, to king mo's takedowns and um you know that looks really impressive to the judges you know when king mo's just taken down taking you down the whole time and he's you know maintaining control dominant position 
even if you're getting hit up, it doesn't look like you're going to get knocked out. So it just looks bad. It doesn't look like you're you're in control at all of the fight. And I think he underestimated it. This fight, to me, was probably the highlight of, of King Mo's career. I mean, obviously, he won the title, and he beat other guys after this. But this was such an upset at the time. And Musasi was just this rising star who people were just like, how good is this guy? And then King Mo just comes in and wrestles him for five rounds and, and takes him takes him down. You know, it's too bad that Mo wasn't able to put together a few victories. I don't think he even defended the title. Or we'll talk about it. You know, he, he I think he lost his next fight. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm pretty yeah. sure he lost, yeah, he lost, uh, lost the title of Feijiao in his first defense. Yeah, I think I got knocked out. And so it's just too bad because King Mo's awesome, but just always seemed in the wrong place at the wrong, at the uh, whatever that is. You know, he never seemed to be in the right place at the right time. You just one deviation off. And, uh, you know, it was great, but he never could break through in a way that he probably deserved based on his talent. You know, he, uh, in his pre-fight interview, actually said that he had a WWE offer um, before he got into MMA and he said, I could have done WWE and, but I wanted to fight. And, you know, it's one of those things like, what if, you know, he was so charismatic and so good on the mic and so real, you know, it was kind of the same thing as rampage Jackson. I think rampage would have been even better in wrestling. Cause I think he was a, a better interview, but King Mo definitely could have, have done well in wrestling. And, you know, looking back now, yeah, he obviously won the strike force belt. He had a lot of success, made a lot of money in Japan. Uh, but it would have been interesting to see what if he'd gone, gone the, you know, the pro wrestling route instead. And maybe that would have been better for his career, maybe even better for his body in the long run. But, uh, yeah, you know, made some good points there. Uh, Fabricio Verdun and Mayhem Miller came into the cage to celebrate and could already see the athletic commission was just letting too many people in the cage needlessly and a preview of, of what was to come. But, uh, yeah, and then we saw we saw DC in there as well. And, uh, you know, I, I they didn't broadcast, a, the again, the UFC Fight Pass broadcast does not have a post-fight interview, but I did see some quotes from Mo afterwards. But... I, so I don't know if they just they just didn't run it because of time or if it's just missing from Fight Pass. But you know, anytime you can interview King Mo and you don't, that seems like a missed opportunity. Yeah, um, I, I did. I was doing some research, and I think they just edited the post fight interviews out of the UFC Fight Pass show uh, from Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer. He has some quotes from the King Mo post fight interview, and uh, so Gus Johnson interviewed Mo. Um, who said, so I guess Mo said um, they were on CBS, but they should have put him on CSI uh, because he looked like uh, the victim of a crime scene. So he did cut a little bit of promo because, you know, he had the closed eye. Uh, but I guess King Mo said, um, you know, he got a little bit careless, but, um, you know, that, that was pretty much, you know, he was sort of giving uh, credit to, to, to Gegard saying he won the fight, but he looked really bad. And then I guess the crowd started booing him and uh, being, you know, what you said, that pro wrestling mentality, you know, the fans turned on him and he turned on the fans and he said something like, uh, you may as well boo him, but I'm going to keep winning. So thanks to my haters. And that was it. So that was a damn good promo. It sounded like I wish it was on UFC Fight Pass. Yeah, that would have been that would have been good to see. But uh, Mo would get a chance uh, four months later to defend the strap against Rafael Feja, which we just discussed. While Musasi would head over to Japan to fight a few times before coming back to Strike Force in 2011, the following year. All right, 
Technically, the co-main event of the night, 155 pounds, Gilbert Melendez defeated Shinya Aoki via unanimous decision to de- retain the Strikeforce Lightweight Championship. Uh, Melendez was 17-2 and two with 11 finishes coming into this one. The champ had avenged his only two career losses in his previous two fights, which must have felt pretty amazing. He beat Mitsuhiro Ishida and Josh Thompson, securing the undisputed, undisputed Strikeforce Lightweight title in the latter of those two tilts. Aoki, the dream lightweight champ, was 23-4-0-1 with only one knockout but 14 submissions out of his 23 wins. Uh, This would be the American and Strikeforce debut for the Japanese star. And in the pre-fight video package, they were definitely playing up Aoki's villain status. Uh, He was in his most recent fight before the Melendez fight. He had broken an opponent's arm and then flipped him off and then also flipped off the crowd. And I, I don't know, Josh, if you've ever seen that clip, but, I mean, it's pretty bad. He breaks his arm with a hammer lock and then immediately, like, flips him off. I mean, just – I hated to see something like that. I'm never I'm never cool with – I mean, guy's got his arm broken and you're flipping him off. I mean, come on, man. Like, Yeah, no, I remember that and just, like, feeling sick to my stomach that, you know, he would do that. So I remember really, really wanting Gilbert Melendez to, to beat the crap out of this guy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they said uh, he was uh, – Aoki was – I dropped from a like a teaching like he was like a uh, like a gym coach not let me say gym but like a fight gym like he was like teaching at a gym or something like that and they dropped him from his position after that and then I read that supposedly he was quote unquote being sent to the U.S. as punishment for what he did by his you know by the Japanese promoters so don't know how true that is but you know obviously not a not not a good look but uh Good crowd reaction for both fighters who showed respect to each other by bowing and shaking hands in the middle of the cage. Uh, extended feeling out process to start things off. Aoki accidentally uh, poked Melendez in the eye, pausing things for a few. But once they restarted, Aoki was able to pull Melendez into his guard. The crowd reacted, and they had a uh, they, they had sold the ground game of the Japanese submission master to the crowd quite well, but the champ was able to get back up pretty quickly. Some good striking exchanges later in the frame. Close round, but I'd probably give it to uh, Melendez 10-9. This was a good round. It was sort of reminded me of one of those nature documentaries when, you know, you've got the, the lion sort of creeping up on the deer and he's, you know, he's trying to eat and the deer's just like barely escaping because that's how it is with Shinya Aoki's. He's the submission specialist, and he stalks you. And, you know, like if there's an equivalent to the Dan Anderson right hand that you have to avoid, I mean, you've got to avoid getting caught by Aoki because he will submit you. And so it was just interesting to watch him just going for the submission and Melendez just being perfect. Like, well, not perfect, but when he when he did get close, he got out of it. He got out of it really quick. And so it was really tactical, kind of, kind of really fun to watch. Yeah, I think I think Melendez game planned with his coaches for this. Just it was really a masterful masterful performance. I mean, I really think he just he knew exactly what to avoid and where to exploit Aoki, and I thought he did a fantastic job. Uh, in the second round, he got things to the mat pretty early on, and Aoki was bleeding pretty well from his nose. And once things got back on the feet, they stayed there until the last minute of the round. Melendez was clearly getting, clearly getting more confident, and every time Aoki would pull Melendez to the mat, Melendez would make him pay with strikes. Another 10-9 round for Melendez. 
Aoki got more aggressive early in the third round, shooting for a takedown, which Melendez rebuffed. Uh, Aoki was able to get things to his guard once again, and, and once again, you could see Melendez was not afraid of that position. It clearly felt like Aoki wasn't as much of a threat on the ground as everyone said he was. Uh, the rest of the round pretty much consisted of Melendez throwing punches at Aoki, who was on his back trying to catch the champ in a submission, and another, in my opinion, 10-9 round for Melendez. Yeah, you know, and I think the other thing is Melendez was just stronger. I mean, Aoki's body type, he's a this thinner guy. Melendez is thick, and I just felt like Melendez was more confident. He was stronger. He had the right game plan, and Aoki was kind of a run-trick pony. He's just hoping to catch Melendez in a bad position, and it would be lights out. But Melendez was just too smart for him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the fourth round, referee Mario Yamasaki seemed intent on keeping the action going, which wasn't happening on the mat, so he kept standing them up. And Melendez landed a, a nice short knee to the gut at one point, and then later in the round, Yamasaki actually caused some controversy when he stepped in to stand the fighters up as Melendez was diving in with a right hand. Aoki was hurt, but Yamasaki paused the bout to warn Melendez. And it was controversial as on replays, it looked like uh, Yamasaki hadn't yet stepped in, but had only said stop. It, it looked kind of weird, but uh, either way, another 10-9 round for uh, for the champ. Yeah, I think Gilbert thought he won the fight, actually. Yeah, he hit I, him. I think so, too. I think so, too. And he kind of put up his like hand a little bit, and he was sort of like about to celebrate. And then, he, obviously, he's real disappointed. Um, I got to say, it's pretty cool to see Melendez land that right hand, lunging in as Aoki's scooting on the ground. You don't really see that. Like, that position is one where you're kind of protecting yourself from that, you know, and you're trying to pull the guy to the ground, and it's really hard to, like, not react. But Gilbert just timed it right and just clubbed him, and uh, it, it was great. Um, and and Melendez would have knocked him out right there if, if uh, Yamasaki did not break him up. I think it would have been Yeah, over. I think it would have been over, too. I think you're right. But regardless, Aoki just, it didn't matter. Aoki just couldn't get anything going. And every time he tried to get things to the mat, Melendez had the right answer, whether it was avoiding or throwing strikes. Uh, El Nino put his Japanese opponent on his back with a nice left hand uh, right at the end of the, the, the round, closing out a very brilliant performance and just a very clear win for Melendez. And very interesting statistic, Aoki was 0 for 18 on takedown attempts. 0 for 18. How crazy is that? I think it was a really effective technical fight for Gilbert. I mean, like I think you said it earlier, but it kind of bordered on masterful. I mean, he was in and out. He was quick. He was efficient. When you fight a guy like Aoki, uh, there's not a lot of opportunity to make a mistake. You know, it's like getting caught in a spider's web. Like you're you're going to struggle and try, but but not you, but you know, whatever's getting caught in there, there's no way out. Right. And, um, it's that way with Aoki and, and Gilbert is like, I'm just not going to ever get caught there. And if I almost get close, I'm going to fight my way out of it. And, and he did. I mean, this is one of Gilbert Melendez's best performances. I feel oh, uh, no, for sure. Yeah. No doubt about that. It was, it, it was vintage, not to <laughs> borrow a, a Michael Cole quote, but it was vintage El Nino. You know, this was this was his type of fight. Melendez was not a, a big time puncher in that he would like he could put you down, but he wasn't generally going to knock you out. Uh, you know, he, he also was not a great submission fighter, but he could catch a submission. He was more of a super cardio, you know, sprawl and brawl, ground and pound type fighter and, and just 
So he's going to get a lot of decisions or wins by TKO coming by way of punches when a guy's on the on the on the back on his back, and that's almost what we saw here. He's not a guy that's going to knock you out with one punch. He's not not a guy that's going to throw a flying triangle and and catch you that way. But so the, in a lot of ways, Aoki was really the perfect opponent for him um, because he just you know he didn't wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna knock Gilbert out. And since Gilbert is so good at avoiding you know a, a, attaining top position and avoiding submissions, it's really kind of tailor made for for Gilbert. But to Aoki's credit, he showed a lot of class and defeat. And uh, you know once again, no no post fight interview on the broadcast. Um, which again doesn't make sense. So, I, but I do know that there was a, you know, I do know that there was a, uh, a post fight interview. Just is not on the the UFC Fight Pass, um, you know, broadcast. That we yeah, I guess Gus Johnson asked Melendez if he thought he was the number one lightweight in the world, and Melendez said that he's at least in the top three. <laughs> and uh, from the from the Wrestling Observer, Dave Meltzer wrote. Uh, you know, if you ask that question, just say you're number one. I mean, don't, yeah. don't, you gotta, you gotta sell yeah. yourself, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But Melendez, I mean, Melendez is, he is a, he is a, like a shoot, shooter. I mean, he's, he's just a truth teller. You know, he's, he doesn't let somebody overhypes himself at all. And so I kind of like that. I, you know, I kind of like the fact that you're not going around there telling everybody you're the best when, you know, you're saying I'm among the best. That's, that's good yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, there would be no rematch between these two. Uh, so that that whole rematch clause thing, I don't know what happened there. But Gil's next fight would be with Strikeforce, but it would not take place for nearly a year. I believe it was April 9th the following year uh, that he, he would sit out. I don't know what happened there yet, but we'll see if there's any articles that come across in my research that explain his absence. Aoki would head back to J- Japan before returning to appear actually on the same Strikeforce card as Melendez. So kind of kind of interesting. We would see both these fighters back in strike force almost exactly a year after this one. All right, we are at main event time. Jake Shields defeated Dan Henderson via unanimous decision to retain the strike force middleweight championship. The champ was 24-4-1, was riding a 13-fight winning streak, and this would be his first defense of the strike force middleweight title. Dan Henderson, 25 and seven was the first. And at the time, the only fighter in MMA history to simultaneously hold two world titles in two different weight divisions in MMA. He was a two time Olympian. And I mean, Hendo was the man. He was the favorite coming into this one, as we've discussed and probably secretly Scott Coker and strike force were pulling for, for him to pull this one out uh, just from a contract, just for contractual reasons. Uh, but both champ and challenger, they both had a lot of decisions wins as, a, as exciting as Hendo is known to be. He does have a lot of decision wins on his record. So, I mean, if I'm looking at this fight before it happens, I'm thinking there's a good chance it's going to go to the distance. And, and it did. All right, let's get to the fight itself. Shamrock pointed out that Henderson had to cut a lot of weight in a short amount of time to make 185 pounds. Also, uh, Gus Johnson mentioned that he was dealing with a bad back, so it kind of kind of seemed like this was actually not a good, the best version of, of Dan Henderson that we might see. Less than 30 seconds in, the highlight of the fight, Hendo landed that H-bomb and that right hand, and Shields went head first to the canvas. However, he recovered quickly, and the champ grabbed a leg looking for the submission, and Hendo poured it on. Uh, and the, the 39-year-old, he kept landing while Shields tried to weather the storm, and he was able to do so, showing some real championship moxie, but Hendo definitely won that first round. All right, let's talk about this, Phil. I mean, that was a right hand from hell, okay? I mean, yeah. that was an incredible punch. Uh, it was actually two. Like, the first one was like a glancing blow, kind of sort of the top of the head. Didn't really do any damage. But uh, as he was re- moving away from that one, Henderson hit him again. And I swear, it looked like 
Shawn Michaels. I mean, it looked like the Undertaker had just hit Shawn Michaels, and and he flew <laughs> uh, down. Yes, like, but, like, but he would have had to he would have had to spit in the air when he got hit <laughs> for it to really be Shawn Michaels. But yeah, that's 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 true. He would have had to have done that and you know pulled his hair back. But no, it, that was a. I mean, he. he I, I, I want to say sold because that's like a wrestling term, but like Jake like fell to the ground like it was over. It, it was crazy. Uh, what a right hand. He's out, but then all of a sudden, he's not. <laughs> you know, Henderson tries to follow up, and this is where he missed his big shot. You know, he pounced on him. He tries to go for the right hand while Jake is down and out, and he misses. And from there, it was all downhill. Uh, you know, Jake grabbed the leg. He's trying to put in, like, a, you know, a, a heel hook. He's just holding on for dear life, and he's nowhere near Dan Henderson's uh, fist. So, he's in fact, he couldn't be farther from him because Dan's standing up. He doesn't want to go down, and Jake Shields is just holding on to the ankle. And so uh, it's just, I don't know if it's just like a twist of fate, a luck, divine intervention, but, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, Jake Shields is not getting up. Uh, but he held on to that, and, and Dan Henderson knows what a submission artist that Jake Shields is, so he don't want to go to the ground. He's trying to get out of that. He's trying to pull out of that, like, uh, you know, with everything that he's got. Uh, Shields showed some great defensive skills, and I think, you know, his youth really helped him because, you know, you get hit when you're young like that, you might be able to come back. You get hit when you're older, you're not coming back. And I think, you know, we talked about Gegard being a little bit exposed um, Henderson was a little bit exposed here, at least at this stage of his career. You know, he's, he's really just trying to knock you out. And, uh, you know, it, it just, you know, he, he missed his chance there. I do want to say something, though. Gus Johnson, I want to know what you think here. He overreacted. Okay, so so the, he landed the right hand. And Gus basically called the fight over, right? He said he's out. At one point he said, I believe he's out. I mean, he just, it was like, Oh, my goodness. But if you actually watch it, the, Jake's body language looked horrible. But as soon as you saw his face, his face was fine. So I just feel like Gus kind of oversold it a little bit. And then Frank Shamrock, I don't know why he hates Jake Shields so much, but he says that chin that Jake Shields talks about is non-existent. <laughs> he was down with one punch. And I think this goes to some of the credibility issues Frank Shamrock has had when he's calling some of these fights. Like, the fighters he doesn't like, he kind of takes his little jabs in there. And um, I just didn't like that because, I mean, everybody, doesn't everybody fall when Henderson hits them? I mean, that's yeah. that's not really well, saying much about Jake's chin too much. I mean, to be fair to Shamrock, he didn't late, later in the fight, he said, I'm a big fan of Jake. So, uh, I yeah, kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth a little bit there. Uh, yeah, I, Gus Johnson definitely overreacted. I mean, you got to wait until the ref stops it, essentially. But, I mean, the way he went down, I, I think it was like one of those Ken Shamrock flash knockouts where, like, you know, he goes out for a second and then wakes back up. And that happened to Ken more than once. I saw that in Pride and the UFC where he'd get knocked out, but he'd come out of it. and But his coming out of it took longer than, than Jake Shields, and so the ref didn't, you know, step in to stop it. So... I mean, and going back to Hendo, you know, he's 39 years old. He's coming off a, a big, big weight cut, apparently, and he's got a bad back. So he's got to be looking to, 
he knows he's not going to have the gas tank to, to, you know, go really long and go deep into this fight and still have a chance. So he's trying to finish as quickly as possible. And he is that's at this point in his career, he was absolutely just a heat seeker with that right hand. That's all he was really about. He wasn't really a wrestler anymore. He used his wrestling more to stop from getting taken down so he could keep things on his feet so he could knock a guy out. So it just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, knowing what we know now, I mean, this was absolutely his best chance to finish, and the, you got to give Jake a lot of credit for you know withstanding that punch and and you know and and staying staying al- staying awake and staying alive. So, uh, but this was really, I mean, that was really it for 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 uh, for Henderson. Um, you know, you things began to turn around for Shields in the second round. He got a takedown, then full mount, started raining down some good punches, and I mean, he was just all over Hendo, mixing up submission attempts and strikes from the top. So ten nine for for Shields, and we're we're you know we're even at one and one. Yeah, Henderson kind of grew old a little bit in this fight. Obviously, he would come back and win later, but it just sort of felt like a passing of the torch here. Uh, Henderson was uh, getting kind of old. He was tired. You know, obviously, everything you mentioned, and and Jake Shields was looking. I mean, he was kind of muscular in this fight, too, Jake. Like, he was looking like, well, damn, maybe Jake's better than we all thought, you know? So, yeah, definitely, we're starting to see that right away at the end of round two. Yeah, and, and it continued on to the third round. Hendo seemed pretty tired at the start, and he was simply looking for an opportunity to connect with that right hand. And he was able to stuff a Shields takedown attempt, though the champ landed one not long after that. And it was just more of that. Shields on top, going for strikes and subs, just suffocating Hendo. Another 10-9 round for the champ. And Hendo did have a moment early in the fourth round where he looked like he might be able to get something going, but it was all for naught as Shields was able to get back in control on the mat. More full mount, more punches, more sub attempts, another 10-9 round. And it was clear that the challenger needed a miracle going into the final round, but it was not to be more of the same. Shields in full mount. Hendo seemed to have gassed out in the first round, and with his conditioning and back issues, he just couldn't get anything going. And Shields couldn't finish, but Hendo couldn't do anything but survive. Big win for Shields, even without the finish. This had to feel really good for him. Yeah, I think Jake Shields shocked a lot of people this night for the reasons we talked about. You know, he was a rising star in Strike Force. He was somebody they were trying to promote. Uh, he was, you know, aesthetically, he looked great, and you know, he got some cool submission wins. Uh, not much of a talker, but you know, who else did they ha- really have that they could really get behind? So Jake was definitely one of those guys, um, and they were they were they were feeding him against the big UFC guy, you know. And Henderson's supposed to go in there, knock him out. We've got this big moment. UFC guy comes over. He's going to be the strike force guy, um, you know. Instead, you know, it, it didn't really happen. Shields would get booed a lot for his style because some people would think it was boring because he's surviving in there and he would win mostly on submissions. But, uh, you know, you, you got to win. You have to do what you have to do. And when you're in there with a guy who can knock you out with one punch, uh, Jake Shields did this absolute right game plan for this fight. Yeah, I mean, you know, Shields, he had to do what he had to do to win and he wasn't going to win a lot of fans in the process, but that's kind of what we saw on this card. I mean, from Mo to Gilbert to, you know, now Jake. I mean, they all, I mean, I think Jake, I think Gilbert went for it more than the other two, but they basically all kind of in a way played it safe to try to, you know, just get the win however they needed to. And, you know, it was, but Jake, especially from a financial perspective, knowing he's going into free agency, he's got a lot more, a lot more leverage if he's still the strike force champ. And, and so he had to make sure that he did whatever he had to do, whether it was crowd pleasing or not. 
uh, to, to make sure that he, he went home with his hand raised and the belt still around his waist. And that's exactly what we did. But uh, now we get to the, you know, the most important part of this, this fight card. Unfortunately, we get to the post fight brawl. Uh, for those that have not seen it or forgotten about it, it is not on UFC fight pass. You can find a couple videos of it on YouTube. But here's what happened. Shields was getting interviewed by Gus Johnson in the cage. Mayhem Miller had somehow gotten into the cage and entered into the camera frame and said, where's my rematch, buddy? Shields kind of looked at him, and then along with Gilbert Melendez, shoves Mayhem, and then Nick Diaz jumps in, throws a punch, and the brawl to end it all was on. Nick D- Nate Diaz was throwing kicks as Hendo's corner stepped in and you know, with commission members, they're trying to break things up. And Gus Johnson is on the mic. You can hear him on, uh, you know, the broadcast saying, gentlemen, gentlemen, we're on national television, repeating it before throwing to commercial. And I mean, just a, a really, really horrible scene. It's not the worst uh, MMA brawl that I've seen. I mean, I would definitely put the, the brawl between uh, Tank Abbott's corner and Cabbage Carrera's corner. I think that was UFC 45, if I remember correctly. That was a really bad one. And then, of course, the uh, uh, the, the, the Conor McGregor-Khabib uh, uh, fight, you know, with, with Khabib jumping in, you know, doing the, the double foot stomp thing and all that. That was definitely worse than this one. But for this to happen on national television, I, I mean, pretty, pretty awful. Yeah, um, according to the Wrestling Observer, what Dave Meltzer wrote, I'll read exactly what he said. This wasn't just your usual pull-apart brawl. This was everyone in the Caesar Gracie camp, including Nick and Nate Diaz, the latter of whom fights for UFC, basically trying to kill Miller. (laughs) It was a violent, brutal fight, and they quickly cut to commercial. As violent and brutal as it was, however, when they returned from the commercial, CBS not only showed a replay, but they pulled Shields out of the cage and interviewed him about what happened. So it's interesting that, you know, that's end quote. It's interesting that they knew it was a disaster, but they kind of, you know, played into it a little bit at the end, I guess, you know, they're just kind of figuring it out as they go. But, but yeah, they showed it again and then they interviewed Jake and it was what it was. (laughs) For something so embarrassing, why would you, you know, why would you do that? So that's, that's an interesting call, but just such a bad look and strike force gets its chance on national TV at real opportunity to get a leg up on the UFC who was still a year away from their first network TV event on Fox and mayhem starts a, a chain of events that would result in strike force never appearing on network TV again. And it was truly a moment that may have changed MMA forever and, and not for the better. Just, just a very sad situation really. Yeah. And from the wrestling observer also, I'm going to read a little bit of the context of, of this event. And, you know, for our listeners, you know, one of the reasons we're, we're quoting Meltzer is, you know, Strikeforce was, you know, a hotbed in San Jose. That's the birth of Strikeforce in San Jose. And so Meltzer was somebody who was covering, you know, all this stuff from the beginning. So he's got a, you know, certain amount of credibility with the Strikeforce brand for sure. I believe he still lives in Campbell, which is a, a suburb of, of San Jose. And I met him briefly at a, and he's got, he's a short guy, shorter than me. Um, at a, I'm five nine. I think he's like five seven or something like that. But I met him at a, a strike force event or something like that. And uh, you know, very briefly. But yeah, he's Bay Area is his home home base. So and that's you know, being strike force, that's where they were. It makes sense. So anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So so what he wrote was, and this is putting the whole event into context. Quote: The event was a disaster in pretty much every way. The televised show, which was scheduled for two hours, went forty five minutes long. 
bumping local newscasts around the country. That was a major issue at the last show, but the decision to do three five-round title fights in two hours, which quite frankly anyone could have seen going in was a recipe for doom, was okayed by CBS in advance. So the network would have to at least split the blame for the overrun. To make matters worse, the three fights went the distance and were hardly crowd pleasers. And then, when the show seemed all wrapped up, a gigantic brawl broke out in the cage, as we talked about with Team Caesar Gracie basically, I'm not going to use his exact words here, but basically, you know, gang attacking Jason Mesa, Mayhem Miller. So that's sort of the, the, the end quote of that, you know, and just putting it more into a little bit more context is that. This hurts Strikeforce because Strikeforce and the UFC, they're trying to be an MMA. They're trying to be a mainstream sport. I mean, they're trying to be like baseball, basketball, soccer. Uh, they're, they're trying to break through. And, you know, it's still the kind of sport at this time. And even to this day where, you know, if, if you know, you're a kid watching it or a teenager and mom walks in, she's like, what are you watching? This is violent. And they're trying to take away that stigma and make it more like this is sport this is high level sport this is competition this is not some you know backyard or barroom brawl so when you have on national tv this happening it looks like a farce so this 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 mayhem no pun intended you know it's it's set strike force and and the world of mma back a little bit you know, people are turning into their 11 o'clock news and they're watching, you know, this brawl or this MMA fight. And that's really not the look that CBS wants. So, you know, CBS, these networks, it's about the advertisers. And if they offend an advertiser, an advertiser says, I don't want to give you the millions of dollars I give you because you're associated with this low-grade sport and this low-grade brand. Um, you better believe you're, you're not going to be on network television again. I don't care how much of a real sport it is. And, you know, obviously UFC's had a lot of success, but I'm not sure the sport's ever fully recovered from that incident. Yeah, it was, I can't disagree with any of that and just not, it was really a black eye, you know, just no question about it. It was really, really a black eye. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll do our event recap in just a second, kind of go, go a little bit more into this, but um, just, yeah, I think it was I, – I don't know that I'd say that the sports never recovered, but, uh, you know, it's – I mean, they, they had the, the Fox deal, and you know, now they've got the ABC deal, it, it, talking about the UFC. So, you know, they've been welcomed back to, uh, to network television. Uh, Bellator has never – you know, with Scott Coker at the helm, has never been uh, on network TV. But now that they're on Showtime, we may actually see Coker get to return to network TV with CBS, which would just be such an amazing story. But – yeah, not not a good look and, and not something that anybody should be looking back on with pride. Um, Hendo would be back later in the year for Strike Force, but this would be it for Shields in the promotion as he would leave to sign with the UFC. Shields would be seen with Dana White at a WC event around this time at which the the UFC prez put his arm around the Strike Force champ, looked at the camera and said, he's mine. Uh, and he would be, for better or worse. Uh, but Shields would get a win over Martin Campman before losing to GSP in front of 55,000 fans in Canada, which broke the, at that time, the record of 
uh, Shamrock versus Gracie uh, of eighteen thousand fans for North America. That so the the one in GS with GSP kind of ironic that a I mean obviously GSP was the was the big draw there, but you know you have a Strike Force former Strike Force fighter headlining with GSP, so kind of a big deal there. But uh, you know Shields he'd have a run in the UFC, but he'd only go four three zero and one and. Uh, so, you know, didn't, you know, he got his one title shot, didn't happen. And, you know, still has to be considered one of the best 170, 185 pound grapplers in MMA history. So, so hey, Phil, did, to him. did you see the Martin Campman fight? I, if I did, I don't remember it. I need you to go watch it because I, I believe to this day Campman won the fight and they, they gave it to Jake because they so badly were building up to the GSP fight. Oh. Uh, but I mean, I think, I think Jake uh, just, he never rose to the occasion in the UFC. I truly believe Jake was capable of being a top-level UFC fighter, but um, I don't know what it was. He just was never able to do it. He was never able he was to rise. I just think he was too one-dimensional. I mean, he just yeah. never got never got the striking down. You know, he just you know just didn't. Not for lack of working on it that I know of, but I, you know, he he was a guy that if you could uh, keep him from taking you down, you you had a good shot at winning. You know, and and so it just, but you know, regardless, we're going to discuss this fight and the post-fight melee and his run with Strike Force with Jake himself on next week next week's episode. So, uh, I've already recorded the chat. Actually, recorded it several weeks back, and it was a good good discussion with him. He's very open and honest about it. So I, I'm looking forward to to running that episode and get, letting you all hear my my discussion with Jake. But uh, let's let's wrap things up. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. Uh, no fighter payroll. The Tennessee State Athletic Commission did not disclose what the fighters were paid, so I have no salary information. On that, uh, you know, to recap things, the event featured three title fights, which on paper seemed like, you know, they could potentially be pretty awesome. Uh, although now that I've read Meltzer's, you know, heard you hear say, uh, repeat what Meltzer wrote, I guess it would make sense that you put three title fights, you know, on the card and, and a, a couple of them tend to have, you know, fighters that, that go to decision. So, you know, you got to realize that there's a good chance that might happen. And, and, you know, so maybe it wasn't the best card. Also, I just, you know, you, you only have so many headliners, so you really want to put all three title fights, you know, on the same card. So kind of questionable booking now that you look back on it, but, you know, unfortunately end up with three decisions, all pretty dominant wins with, you know, very few real fireworks and both Misasi and Hendo were just overwhelmed and, but Moe and Shields seem to play it pretty safe, respectively, went in their fights handily, but not likely gaining many new fans. Melendez, I felt like he went for it more in, again, a very masterful performance, but Aoki was able to keep out of trouble just enough to, to you know, avoid getting finished. But any positive, any positive is overshadowed by the post-fight or the post-main event brawl. So, I mean, you, you, you kicked this thing off at the beginning, Josh, saying that, you know, maybe this was uh, the thing that really ended Strike Force, and I think you could make a really strong case that this was the beginning of the end uh, for the promotion. I mean, they would never be back on CBS because of this, and you know, the event didn't. You know, 2.9 million fans is is great in today's age, but when you had Kimbo when he was headlining, you know, drawing four and five million, uh, you know, 2.9 is not you know is not great, and and so you've got. Yeah, a main event that it was, you know, three fights that weren't very exciting. Uh, you know, the, the post fight, you know, brawl. And then, you know, really none of the three fights were, uh, yeah, just, I mean, it, it just was not, it was not a successful event. And so, 
you know, you have CBS that says we're done with you guys. We're not having you back on. So who knows what would have happened if this event had gone better and the relationship with CBS would have continued. I mean, even with the 2.9, let's say the next one you headline with Fedor and it draws four or five and, you know, Cyborg's getting built up and you're going to do the first major MMA event on, you know, on network TV. And, and you've got, you know, maybe you're able to, Hey, Gina, you want to come back and rematch and, and we'll, you know, we'll give you a cut of whatever. I mean, just uh, perhaps Strikeforce would still be in business if this event had not gone down the way that it did. But, uh, but Josh, what did you think? Can you imagine if they were able to stay on network TV by the time Ronda Rousey started to emerge on the scene? I mean, that would have been that would have been unreal. Um, you know, they should have just booked heavyweights. You know, that's the, your average person who watches combat sports, who's not an MMA or boxing fan, just wants to see the big guys fight. You know, and they they should have done a better job. You know, I kind of hold Scott Coker a little bit accountable for the show. I mean, obviously, he'd probably say the same thing. It, you know, it starts with him. Um, you know, we talked about the different promotional styles between him and Dana White. Uh, Coker's definitely a, a fighter's promoter. You know, he puts the fighters first. Uh, they like fighting for him. They make more money, um, you know, at least most of the guys, except for the very top ones. Um, you know, so, you know, he's, he's a good guy, you know, and he's, he's obviously a good promoter. And, you know, he's, he's somebody who's competed himself. So he knows what that's like. But I feel like if you're going to be on the network and you're going to be trying to reach a whole new audience and you're trying to build a business, you've got to lay down the law. You know, behind the scenes, you got to do a Paul Heyman, you know, backstage and just be like, look, this is every one of these things is a big deal and it could be our last. And uh, we've got to go out there and not get into trouble and focus on the fighting, focus on the sport. And there's no time for any shenanigans. We can't go into business for ourselves because we'll all be hurting because of it. And, you know, I don't know that he didn't do that, but I don't think he did. And, um, you know, I, th I think you got to lay down the law. I mean, I think one thing about Dana White is, you know, I think the fighters largely don't like him, but they, they, they know that they can't get away with a lot of stuff because he's so involved and he's so heavy-handed, and so they, 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 they have a certain amount of respect for him, not in a good way, but like almost like a fear. And you know, you mentioned the Conor McGregor thing and Khabib uh, and that whole brawl, you know. So I guess that's an example, but. I don't know. I just sort of feel like like more should have been done by Scott Coker and the network beforehand just to say, hey, we got some crazy. We got the Diaz brothers. We got Mayhem Miller. This is a big deal. We, you know, we're locking the cage. Nobody's coming in here. You know, I, yeah. I feel like could have been prevented. I, I mean, you got to put some some uh, some responsibility on the, the athletic commission, you know, because they're the ones that are supposed to be controlling the, the doors. Yeah. You know Scott and and all that stuff. I I you can make some good points in there. I I don't know that if this I mean because this did happen with Dana with Habib and uh Habib and 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 Connor. So I mean it's not like it's never happened under Dana's watch. But you know it, it yeah Scott is definitely not known as the you know dictatorial type leader that Dana is. So maybe that played into this. But regardless, I I, I think you actually got to put more on the athletic commission because it's their job to man the cage doors. So, you know, there, this was an inexperienced commission when it came to MMA, you know, this was, uh, the embryonic stages of MMA really spreading into, you know, the rest of the country. So 
I don't even know how many MMA events they'd handled before this, but just, you know, unfortunate all the way around. Uh, and just, you know, I, I, yeah, I, you think you could make a case for saying this is the show that really ruined strike forces chances of being a real viable contender to the UFC, but yeah, unfortunate. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, looking ahead, Jake Shields will be our guest on next week's show, so make sure you tune in for that. After that, we will be covering Strike Force Heavy Artillery, which features fighters such as Rafael Fejau, Hodger Gracie, Kevin Randleman, Jacare Souza, Bigfoot Silva, and Andre Arlovsky. And in the main event, after a three-year absence, Alistair Overeem would finally return to Strike Force to defend his heavyweight title against Brett Rogers. After that, this is, uh, I'm going to take a minute on this. I don't usually do this, but we are going to be discussing the ill-fated Shine Fights event, which took place on the same night as Heavy Artillery. Uh, this was supposed to be headlined by an MMA fight between the very respected veteran Dean Thomas and former champion boxer Ricardo Mayorga. Uh, or Ricardo Mayorga, sorry, he's not Brazilian. I was a publicist for this event, and it ended up being canceled 20 minutes before bell time. I was there in North Carolina in person. I almost got beat up backstage. It's a crazy story, and I'm going to tell my side of it publicly for the first time. Uh, I also, and as we record this today, I, I texted Ron Foster, who was the matchmaker uh, for this, and he was on the ground with me in North Carolina, and we became kind of blood brothers in a way because of our experiences that week. And he has agreed to come on the show. And so I'm going to be chatting with him uh, sometime in the next week or two. And we will, we're going to tell the story of, of shine fights and there's some articles out there on it. I'm going to do a little bit of research, but this is really going to be more about what happened from my perspective, what I heard, you know, and then again, the same thing from Ron, what happened from his perspective and, and what he heard as well. And so we're going to, we're going to do something a little bit different. Again, this event happened the same night as, heavy artillery and at that point i was managing or working with um uh lyle beerbaum who was fighting in st louis at the heavy artillery card uh, i had to make a decision which one to go to and since i was getting outright paid uh for the the shine fights event i went to that instead of uh you know the heavy artillery and then we ended up watching heavy artillery in a, a bar at the, I think at the hotel where, where all the fighters were staying, we all kind of, or not all, but some of us went in and, you know, basically watched the fights on, uh, on Showtime, you know, at that time. So it's a, it's a pretty incredible story. I'm looking forward to talking about it. So I hope that you are as well. That'll be coming in the next couple of weeks. And then we've got more episodes to announce after that. I uh, want to know, I want to know who had to go into the ring or to the cage and announced there would be no show. That, I can tell you that was it was. Uh, it, it's not a big. It's not a big deal. It was the the ring announcer who was not. An, I didn't. I didn't know who it was. And it was actually we the the fight was going to be in a ring. We actually had the ring set up and and all that stuff. So it wasn't going to be in a cage. And yeah, it was the ring announcer. And I remember I was behind a curtain. And I kind of peeked my head out. And there's you know good good chunk of fans in there. The fans were still coming in. Um, and, and so, man, people started booing and throwing stuff into the ring. And, you know, there was a lot of anger out there and there was a lot of anger backstage for sure. So it's a, oh, like I said, a crazy story and, and I'm looking forward to, to telling it with Ron and, and I'm sure you guys will, will, will get a, uh, get some entertainment out of it. It's uh, you know, it's not a happy event by any stretch, but, you know, looking back on it 11 years ago now, 
uh, you know, I have a little bit more clarity. So yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting, definitely interesting for sure, which is, seems to be the word of the day on this episode. <laughs> but uh, make sure that uh, you're following us on social media. We're not very active on Instagram and Twitter. I have our Instagram Twitter handle is at the Hexagon pod. I'm looking to see if I can get somebody uh, involved that can kind of take over social media activities. I just, I started a new job um, within the last month and a half and I just do not have time to do social media uh, anymore. And, and so it's, it's kind of fallen to the wayside and I apologize for that. Uh, but if you are interested and you want to get involved, you please hit me up at fill it inside the hexagon.com. Would love to, you know, if you want to be part of the team, I would love to hear from you. Would love to get your feedback on the show as well. Make sure you rate and review the show on Apple podcasts or wherever you get this. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.